0: Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com That's www.felixeddy.com Thank you. Hi. I am David McLean, the creator of this podcast. This episode is called Six for the specific reason that they're supposed to be sequential. So, uh, if you really like to appreciate this to its full capacity, you might want to go back and listen to one. And so on and so forth. You get the gist. There may be a time actually when they are not sequential, when you can just listen to the first one that comes up. But that's not what's going on right now. Uh, Anyway, thank you so much for listening. The news is next.
1: Hi, you're listening to WXYZ, live from the island of Santiambo and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report, time-traveling news and information for the descending time traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate aggregate date is the 3.28th of June, 3202. For those of you who celebrate, happy sexy archaeologist day. Now here's the post-apocalyptic report. 8. San Tiempo Senior High School students have signed letters of intent to join the Time Traveler Corps. The Time Traveler Corps' chief mission is to reach peoples in third world timelines and assist them with propping up flagging economies with sports betting. These students all receive t-shirts featuring the Time Traveler Corps' mission statement, It's not cheating if you use your powers for good. The movie premiere of Cardinio is being held on Friday this week at 8 o'clock in the evening at the Time Travelers Resort and Museum. Cardinio is based on a play by William Shakespeare, originally performed by the King's Men and lost for several centuries afterward until a manuscript copy was recovered by agents of the museum from Louis Theobald in 1727. The movie stars Orson Wells and Taylor Swift and was shot on location in 13th century Spain. Early reviews have been mostly positive. Tickets are still on sale. The Santiempo Galactic Model Company has introduced a new series of rideable model spaceships. These ships are 1 1000 scale models and move using 51st century light speed technology. These ships are available for viewing or riding at the company's retail outlet on Main Street in downtown Santiempo. It is recommended that you make reservations online before heading down. They are closed on Wednesdays. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming.
0: And now, the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time. Iceland. The dragon slept. This wasn't difficult for him. He could sleep for years on end. Although the weather outside was a bitter cold, the cave was warm, and he could always make it warmer. If left alone, a dragon could easily sleep for more than a century. The difficulty was what to do when you woke up. This was the dragon's form of grieving. If he slept for a century, everything would be different anyway. Ninety-five years from now, he would wake up to a new world, one that bore little resemblance to the one he lived in now, and the thought of the princess wouldn't bother him so much. Jocelyn had lived a good life, he was sure. When he left her, she had been young and beautiful. It was nice to think of her that way. By the time he woke up, the world would only remember her as a part of history. Perhaps that would be a good thing. It would be like a rebirth. Everything from this day and age would be gone, including the foul-smelling man who was wandering around outside the mouth of the cave.
1: The foul-smelling man?
0: Even by the standards of the time, the man in question was particularly foul. Clearly being on a boat for that long had done him no favors. There was no question that he had been on a boat. It was a long way to the coast of Britannia. He would have done well to find an inn with a hot bath if there was one, but of course, there wasn't one. Apart from the dragon, the island was completely uninhabited and would be for several centuries. The dragon's only neighbors were a pack of Arctic foxes whose fur was a lovely shade of white and whose flesh the dragon found particularly tasty. The man wouldn't find any other humans without turning around and heading back to Britannia. Of course, that begged the question, why was he here? The dragon woke up. There was, of course, only one reason that someone would be here, and that was to do something foolish. The dragon scratched behind his ear with a ducal claw and waited for the stranger to come in. Now that he was awake, he realized that he had smelled this particular man before. The smell had been fainter last time, but it was recognizable. Perhaps he would change his mind about coming in. He was certainly taking his time about it. By the time Jack Cassidy made his way in, the dragon had wondered if perhaps he could go back to sleep. Unfortunately, he had no such luck. Jack didn't have his sword drawn yet, but there was no mistaking this for a pleasure call. The smell of fear on him was simply too strong. He looked dirty and hungry, and he had added a shield with a skull on it that didn't seem promising. The dragon had identified him by smell, and now that he had seen him, he felt a sense of pity. There would undoubtedly be no reasoning with him, but perhaps he could be scared into turning back the way he came. Listen. The dragon said. Jack, wasn't it? It is, Jack agreed. Let me stop you right there. This isn't going to work. What isn't going to work? This this whole plan you have worked out in your head. The girl isn't going to be impressed by a dead dragon. For that matter, if you're at the point where you think a dead dragon is the pinnacle of grand romantic gestures, then you may want to go home and rethink your life i'd recommend looking into something a little more artistic next time you want to impress a lady have you thought about playing the lute i'm not trying to impress a girl i want your magic the dragon supposed that this made a little more sense it was not widely known that you could absorb the power of a magical creature by killing it but that was primarily because there were so few of them left. Somehow the kid had found out. Poor boy. The dragon deliberately stretched out to his full body length. It was a gesture that served two purposes. The first was to show off his massive physical size, and indeed, compared to the young man, he was imposing. Second, and more importantly, it made him look like this entire conversation was boring. "'Listen,' the dragon said. "'I'm sure you've heard a story or two about slaying a dragon, "'and I have no doubt that you have been gearing up for quite a battle. "'The truth is that I never fight with humans because there isn't any point. "'I can melt that sword on your belt before you draw it from its sheath.' "'Jack Cassidy drew his sword. "'The dragon rolled his eyes.' You know, in principle, I would agree with you, Jack said, if you were the first magical creature that I had killed. The dragon lacked the manual dexterity or the properly shaped cartilage to pinch the bridge of his nose, but the expression on his face implied that he would have liked to have done just that. Who is it? he asked, his eyes closed. The Black Knight? The Troll? The Sphinx? Jack admitted. I found her in India, ruling over a tea dynasty. I don't remember telling you about her. I've heard stories, Jack said. So, you killed her, the dragon concluded. It took some doing, Jack Cassidy admitted. Once I had taken care of her, I went after some of the others. The magic made it easier. The dragon sighed. I'll warn you, if you do this, that will put a target on your back. Jack raised his sword over his head. Then I'll paint it on my shield and tell everyone it's my coat of arms. There was a moment of silence that stretched out for an uncomfortably long period of time. The two looked at each other. The fight began when the dragon inhaled and filled the cave with fire. For a moment, the dragon couldn't see anything. When the flames parted, Jack Cassidy was gone. Had he incinerated him completely? It was certainly possible, but something didn't feel quite right. The dragon leaned forward and started to peer out of the cave, hoping the young man had decided to make a run for it. Where are you? he mumbled quietly. The answer to his question came in the form of a stabbing pain to his left wing. "'Somehow Jack Cassidy had gotten behind him. "'Jack drove his sword into the dragon's wing "'and pulled down hard, ripping it into two pieces. "'Blood spurted out, and the dragon gave out an enormous cry. "'Although it didn't matter just now, "'he had just lost the ability to fly. "'The dragon lashed out reflexively with his tail, "'but missed, swinging it at thin air. "'He spun around quickly, but again, Jack wasn't there. "'It was a good trick.' but the dragon wasn't going to fall for it twice. Before Jack had a chance to attack, the dragon dug his claws into the earth and sprang backward. Although he couldn't see Jack, he was able to connect with him, knocking him over and pinning him against the stone floor of the cave. Jack twisted his arm and was able to get his sword hand free. He stabbed wildly at the dragon's back several times. Some of the jabs were deflected by the dragon's scaly skin, but enough went plunging into the dragon, causing blood to come spurting out. The dragon realized that for the first time in his very, very long life, he was afraid he was going to die. The dragon filled the room with fire for a second time. Jack was behind him, and he couldn't aim at Jack correctly, but he hoped the flames would spread in such a way that they could catch him. For one moment, the inside of the cave felt like it was hotter than the sun, Then the dragon gasped for breath and collapsed. He wasn't clear how it happened, but somehow Jack Cassidy had gotten back on his feet and was standing in front of him. "'The first time I saw you, I knew what you were,' the dragon sputtered. "'A villain.' Jack shrugged. "'You know, I, I used to be a pirate,' he said." Then I went to university and studied because I wanted to be someone else. It didn't work. I was still a pirate. Then I came here and tried to be a knight, and that didn't work either. I will always be a pirate, and you will always be a dragon. At least you have been, until now. The dragon lunged forward. His sheer physical size was normally an asset, but in such an enclosed space it made turning difficult... The dragon's left side dragged awkwardly and his breathing sounded labored, but he was still dangerous. Jack Cassidy easily dodged to one side and struck the dragon in the neck. The dragon collapsed onto the ground. The dragon gasped slowly. I don't know what your goal is, but I know you won't succeed. Jack leaned over the dragon's head. He didn't need to fight anymore. He could just sit and wait for the dragon to die. He would need to perform the ceremony before then. And why, he asked, his voice taking on a tone of pure amusement. Do you think that it won't work? The faintest whiff of smoke came out of the dragon's mouth. Because, he said, the first time I saw Keith Quick, I knew what he was too. Jack Cassidy cleaned the blood off his blade. When Helen first heard of the death of the dragon, she cried despite herself. She was a kind hearted girl who loved animals, and the thought of a death of a living creature always caused her sorrow, even if it was one that was 14 feet tall and could breathe fire. She saw Jack Cassidy as the villain of the piece without question. In spite of what he had said to the dragon, Jack Cassidy would have been shocked that anyone would see him as anything less than a hero vanquishing an evil monster, or at any rate a complicated protagonist endeavoring to do the right thing. Spring privately thought that the difference between these two reactions, the one that Jack would have expected, and the one that he got were indicative of what she understood about his life. Helen's mother, Alice, who knew Jack before and after this incident would reflect that Jack's greatest flaw was the belief that if you couldn't be the hero of your own life, you might as well be the villain. When Keith found out that Jack had attacked the dragon, he would be so full of rage that he would want to try and kill him. To be fair, though, he was in the middle of doing that anyway. White Castle. Keith Quick slipped into the role of Lancelot surprisingly easily. Jousting was easy to do, and with a little practice he got good at it. He was still half a head taller than any other knight, which gave him an easy advantage. Living at Camelot was considerably more comfortable than living in his smithy. He enjoyed the company of his fellow knights, and he and Arthur quickly became good friends. It was strange how friendships seemed to roll in cycles, coming and going like waves on the beach. One year you might be the big man on campus, and the next you were Robinson Crusoe. There didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to when the tide changed. Keith had been out to sea by himself for a long time, and now he was happy to be back on the beach with friends. I don't know why it took me so long to embrace this era, Keith thought one day as he was practicing archery with Sertor in the castle garden. This is a lovely time. Pull the arrow up closer to your cheek, Sertor suggested. But I hit the target, Keith protested. You did, and if you move the arrow closer to your cheek, it will look like you meant to hit it. Keith followed this instruction and hit the target dead center. "'You weren't much of a shot at first, Tor said, stringing back his bow. "'But you've improved greatly.' "'Thanks,' Keith said. "'Truth be told, I didn't think you were much of a knight at first, Tor admitted. "'I guess it shows what I know.' It's just that everything you did it looked like you were doing it for the first time. I guess you could say that I grew up dreaming of being a knight the same as anyone else, Keith said. Just in my case, it paid off. I think it was that long arm of yours that paid off more than anything, <laughs> Tora laughed. I'll be glad to have you on my side if we ever end up in battle. If it's the same to you, I'd prefer that it didn't come to that, Keith replied. We don't get to make choices like that, I'm afraid, Tor said. Sooner or later, war always comes, sometimes when you least expect it. I managed to talk Arthur out of it once, Keith said, a little defensively. You did, Tor agreed. I heard about that. "'Did you really fight alongside a dragon?' "'Well, when you are with a dragon, you don't do a lot of fighting,' Keith declared. "'I did travel with one, though. "'We convinced the king to make peace with Leota Grants "'and focus on war with France instead.' "'I would have liked to have seen a dragon,' Sir Tor said, "'sounding more than a little regretful. "'It's my bad luck.' I got to meet the French instead. Paris is lovely, Keith replied. Not when you're an occupying force, Sir Tor said. Keith heard footsteps coming toward him. He spun around to find Arthur and Gwen coming up behind him. How's training? Arthur asked. He may make a good night yet, Tor said with a wink. We'll take you hunting, Arthur said. Bagging a deer will give you more confidence with a bow. Somewhere in Keith's mind, Bambi's mother grazed on a patch of grass. Will I see you in church tomorrow, Sir Tor? Guinevere asked. Without a doubt, Sir Tor said. "'Gwen has turned away from the British gods and follows the gods of the Hebrews,' Arthur said, turning to look at Keith. "'It seems a shame.' "'I turn to God for hope, not fear,' Gwen said. "'Your gods are all about death.' "'British gods are not about death,' Arthur protested. Then, with a laugh, he said, "'Well, OK, maybe they are, but that doesn't mean they are wrong.' Isn't it a God's job to show us the truth? It is, but there are larger truths than the inevitability of death, Gwen replied. Or at least, more hopeful ones. I think that a good person can find hope in any religion, just as a bad person can exploit it, Keith said. Guinevere didn't look at him. Well, you're bound to be fun at parties, Arthur joked. "'At any rate, Gwen will be happy to see you there. "'I may have kingly duties that morning,' he added. "'The king and queen turned around and left. "'Keith picked up another arrow and turned back to the target. "'He took aim and fired, hitting a little left of centre. "'During the time that he had been in Camelot, he had won a tournament, "'he had befriended Arthur, he had joined the round table, "'and he had become a knight.' By and large, he had hit all the marks he expected to hit, except one. No matter how pleasant he was, no matter what he did, Guinevere hated him, and he didn't know why. Keith hadn't noticed it at first. He hadn't even noticed it at second, the truth be told. It wasn't as though the queen screamed at him and slammed a door in his face. No, it wasn't like that. Gwen wasn't going to give him the satisfaction of acknowledging that she hated him. In fact, she wasn't going to acknowledge his existence at all. For the past three months, Keith had been treated by Guinevere as though he were an empty space on a white wall. She didn't talk to him. She didn't look at him. When he walked in front of her, her eyes didn't seem to focus. Still, you could tell every time Keith was within 15 feet of her, he felt like he should put on a sweater. I've been by myself for so long that I forgot how annoying it is to have someone angry at you, he thought. It wouldn't have bothered him, truth be told, even though he was Lancelot and she was who she was. It didn't even bother him that she was beautiful, and she was beautiful, incredibly beautiful. Since the first time he had seen her, she had matured into an incredible woman with poise and grace and charm that could command a room of any size. She was all of that, and she was Arthur's wife, and technically Keith was still married, and all of that was fine. He could have lived with all of that, and it would all have been fine. It was just that, for the life of him, he had no idea why she disliked him so much— at least until the night of the masquerade. A dance was something to be enjoyed in every century that Keith had ever been to, and this was no exception. There would be food and elegant dress. Admittedly, the music would not compare favorably to Louis Armstrong at the Copacabana, but it would set the castle on a roar. There would also be, well, masks, a concept that Keith found delightfully odd. "'I don't see why this is necessary,' Keith said as he donned a black mask "'that made him look more than a little like a pirate. "'Truth be told,' Sir Torres said as he lowered his voice to barely a whisper. "'I think it's because sometimes married ladies "'like to go home with people who are not their husbands.' "'Keith rolled his eyes. "'The God of the Hebrews is a little more strict.' In these matters, Sir Tor acknowledged. The British Guards took a different viewpoint, and sometimes people go back to the old ways. Just play along, Sir Tor added. There aren't a whole lot of nights in this life where we know everyone is going to have a good time. Just try to relax and enjoy yourself. Keith looked Out the window of his room. From a yew tree in the courtyard, an owl sat staring at him. "'You're supposed to be wise,' Keith called to the owl. "'Do you think this is a good idea?' The masquerade was an amazing party. The whole court was there, and a few lords and ladies had come in from out of town besides." Keith found it much more enjoyable than a joust and was privately wondering how knocking men off horses with sticks had become a thing that people watched for fun. Even the music was good, which was saying something since this was the Middle Ages and droning instruments were all the rage. There was a harp, a flute, and a drum, and the musicians appeared to have at least met each other before and possibly practiced together. Honestly, it wasn't any harder to tell who was who with the masks on than it was in the pages of a comic book, although the copious amounts of alcohol being consumed might have made it a little trickier for some of the guests. Keith was easy to spot since he had to wear his glasses over the mask, which was a bit of a tell, seeing as how he was the only person anyone had ever seen with glasses and was constantly being stared at by almost everyone. "'It seemed to be more of the principle of the thing, "'the idea that you could be anyone, "'that anyone you met could be whomever they wanted. "'Sir Tor seemed to find his way to the ale quickly "'and sat at a table singing off-key with a bunch of older knights. "'Keith, who had never really known how to handle parties very well, "'started out the night the way he usually did, by standing awkwardly in a corner and wondering if anyone knew that he was there. As it turned out Arthur knew, he found his way over to where Keith was hiding, just as the band was striking up their next tune. He was wearing a red tunic and a red mask and had a goblet full of wine, which Keith suspected had already been refilled more than once. Much to Keith's surprise, Arthur had a girl around his arm, who, masked or not, "'Definitely wasn't Guinevere. "'It was a short woman with dark hair and black eyes. "'She wore a blue mask cut to look like it had devil horns attached to it, "'and she had a strange smile, "'like she had a secret that she didn't want you to know. "'Having fun?' Arthur asked brightly. "'Yes,' Keith said, and he tried to sound like he meant it. "'Fancy a dance?' "'Arthur asked. "'With you?' Keith replied with a laugh. "'I'm sure we'd set the room upon a roar. "'I was thinking you'd like to dance with my sister here. "'Morgan is a bit of a newcomer, too.' "'There was a pause, and a silence, and a pause again. I'm, "'I'm afraid I don't know how,' Keith stammered awkwardly. "'This seemed to be the most diplomatic way to get out of it.' "'Neither do I,' Arthur admitted, laughing. "'Just sway in time and bend your knees when it seems like a good idea. "'Go on, both of you, don't make me make it an order.' "'Yes, my lord,' Keith heard himself saying, and he took Morgan by the hand. "'Medieval dancing is, in fact, just as messy and disorganized as it is in every other era. "'It seemed to involve a lot of spinning and some general laughter every time someone made a mistake, "'which was often—' After the spinning, there was a thing where they all brought their hands together in a manner that seemed to imply that they were about to play the fourth quarter against Notre Dame. Then there was a thing where they paired off and swayed back and forth in the way that caveman did, and also in the way that people do in every other era. Keith looked down at Morgan. She was looking up at him in a manner that might have been appealing if he hadn't once met Thomas Mallory, which he had. He thought perhaps he should come up with some polite conversation. "'The king said you were a newcomer as well,' he said. "'I have been away studying magic with the fairies, good sir,' Morgan said. "'Right, hence the name,' Keith replied. "'I I beg your pardon,' Morgan asked. "'Keith thought of trying to come up with a good lie to explain what he had just said,' And then he decided that perhaps one wasn't necessary. I had heard of you before I came to Camelot, he stammered. I had heard that you were called Morgan the Fairy. Morgan smiled. And I have heard of you too, Mr. Quick. Keith's real name was not a secret, but even so, no one called him that anymore. A thought passed through his mind. "'Have we met?' he asked. "'Morgan shook her head. "'No, good sir, it was Merlin that told me about you.' "'Keith raised his eyebrows. "'Merlin?' "'Morgan looked at the floor and nodded. "'Yes, sir.' "'I I never met Merlin,' Keith said with a frown. "'He left before you arrived. "'He knew of the magic that brought you here.' keith could hardly believe what he was hearing so merlin was a time traveler morgan said that's what it's called isn't it for the first time in far too long keith's heart felt a twinge of hope what happened to him he asked morgan looked up at him it's too strange to tell she said and by that keith assumed that she didn't know Keith undoubtedly would have liked to have asked a few follow-up questions, but a tall man stood up on a table and shouted, "'Songbird! We need a songbird!' After which someone, who had undoubtedly had too much wine, shouted, "'The Queen! The Queen!' Guinevere, who was wearing a white mask shaped like a butterfly, had been sitting in the center of the room, smiling politely. She smiled and demurred for just a moment or two before... The applause of the crowd convinced her to climb on top of the table. As a lute began plucking through a one five six four chord progression, Guinevere sang in a high breathy voice.
2: wishing that summer Save it for a day with a cloudy sky When you leave your thoughts behind Fireflies burn the skies We don't ask a question why When you see the sky on you desire. (laughs) The beautiful memories will always fade like sunsets over the gold. the choices we have the of. The, of. the, of. the of.
0: Somewhere in the middle of the song, Keith had stopped dancing. Arthur was standing next to him. Not bad. Arthur said appreciatively. Not bad, Keith agreed. He seemed to be drinking an ale that would probably not have gotten a thumbs up from the US Food and Drug Administration. He turned to his friend to say something, but Arthur had already wandered off. Arthur seemed to have his arm around Morgan Le Fay again and was wandering around the room. Sometimes married ladies like to go home with people who are not their husbands, Keith thought. And sometimes husbands like to go home without their wives. It's a strange thing to know what's going to happen because you read it in a book. He thought about going and stopping Arthur, but he knew Arthur would just get mad at him and it could probably happen another time anyway. It was still creepy. Keith found his way to the table that Sir Tor was at and sat down next to him. Tor was arguing with another knight about the best method for hunting boar. Sir Tor had been a bachelor knight for the better part of four decades and was not planning on breaking with that lifestyle any time soon. "'The princess is quite a singer,' Keith said offhandedly. "'The queen is a songbird,' Tor agreed. There was an awkward silence as both men had another drink. "'When I first came to Britain, I thought I made a big splash,' Keith "'reflected with a swig of ale. "'I staggered in with a dragon "'and kicked my feet up on the round table, "'and then, well, I got lost somehow. "'I heard about it,' said Tor. "'The swagger, not the other thing.' "'The thing is,' Keith said, taking another swig, "'now that I'm here, it feels like I got lost on purpose, "'like I was running away from my destiny.' Sir Tor grunted. I don't like destiny, he said. Neither do I, Keith agreed. It feels too much like giving control of your life to someone else. Tor laughed without any joy behind it. I think you'll find that sooner or later we all hand our lives over to someone else. Maybe, Keith said but is there a difference between handing it over to someone willingly and having it taken away? Just make sure you're not giving it away for a song, Tor replied. Keith stared at the queen. She was chatting animatedly with a tall knight in a forest green mask. His beard was gone and he had floppy bangs that he didn't have the last time Keith had seen him. Keith had consumed a little more alcohol than he had intended, but there was nothing that would have kept him from recognizing Jack Cassidy. Jack looked at Guinevere and then smiled, and then he looked at Keith and smiled again. The two smiles were not the same. Keith started to walk towards the two of them. Jack disappeared into thin air. Keith couldn't believe it. For a second, he thought maybe Cassidy had snuck out somehow. The room was crowded, and he supposed it was possible that Jack had quickly moved behind someone else or ducked under a table. But that wasn't it. He disappeared. He was gone. Had he ever been there to begin with? Suddenly, Keith wasn't sure. Maybe it was a trick of the mind. Maybe the ale had been spiked with some kind of hallucinogen. Keith searched around the room. Wherever Jack had gone to, he wasn't there now, and no one else seemed to have noticed he had vanished. No, whatever it was, Keith was sure it was real. It had to be. He crossed the room quickly and placed his arm on Guinevere's shoulder. My lady, he said. He hadn't quite figured out how to address the queen. Guinevere pulled away from Keith and gave him a dirty look. Whatever was the best way to talk to her. Clearly grabbing her by the shoulder was a social faux pas. Lancelot Guinevere cried. "'The knight, Keith interjected. He didn't really know what to say. There was a knight, and he— Did you see that?' Guinevere looked at him coldly. "'You have had too much to drink,' she said." The truth was, she was right. He absolutely had had too much to drink. Which was why he said what he said next. What have I done to you? He asked angrily. Why do you hate me so much? The queen stared at him. It was as if the entire world had gone silent. You gave me away, she said simply. I was young, I had my whole life in front of me. You said I was the most beautiful woman you had ever seen, and you gave me away. The queen stood up, turned, and walked away. Keith sat and stared at the empty space where she once stood. She was right, he had given her away. She had every right to hate him.
2: And now, and Random now, Acts and of and random now. Acts. Of acts of if time is really space and space
0: is time, then midnight is nowhere and noon is the sea. We'll dance in the moonlight and drink white wine, turning out the lights as the clock strikes three. If time is the music that makes men's lives, then our wedding bells will need to fix. We'll begin planning right after sunrise, with breakfast as the clock strikes six. In the morning, time is our best ally. We have nothing to fear through seven hells. Our love is the sun in a cloudless sky, and now the clocks are striking out nine bells. Midday is the time of our greatest joy. A child came to us, and none too soon. We couldn't care less if she was a girl or boy, the height of our lives as the clock struck noon. There's a time to plant and a time to sow, and we watched you sprout like an apple tree. There's nothing better than watching you grow. I'm amazed at life as the clock strikes three. Sunset is time's most beautiful sorrow. We celebrate with a feast not to be missed. We'll let you go for your own tomorrow, waving goodbye as the clock strikes six. If time is made of choices and dreams, then we'll fill it up with adventures fine. Let's toast to life and to chasing moonbeams. We're living it up as the clock strikes nine. We know time is endless, but we are not. We leave with the candle's last burning light. It's time we smile and accept our lot because the clock is striking midnight.
2: This has been a restless act, act of, a random act of a your welcome.
0: Hi, this is David McLean. I'm the creator of this podcast. I just wanted to say thanks for listening. I'm supposed to tell you to write a review and subscribe. But I'm supposed to say that that helps the podcast, but. Truth is, I'm going to just do this just because I love to do it and for no other reason. I play these to my wife on Tuesday nights. And if you're listening to, that's great. This is a book that I've been working on, and I discovered that, well, I just like the results better if I recorded it and read it aloud and did all that kind of stuff. It's called The Infinitely Spiraling Clock although the news is something else just for fun that I made up and the random act of poetry tonight is from my book Witches, Witches Everywhere. The Infinitely Spiraling Clock is a sequel to a novel I wrote called The Time Traveler's Resort in Museum, although there are characters in it from another book I wrote called Dragon Bait as well. If you really wanted to support the podcast, you could go And check those things out. By the way, I promise I'm never going to do a Patreon. I just... I don't think that's a good idea. Anyway, thanks for listening. Have a good day. Next week, the night in the cart.